for a number of years now and up until the present. There's been an increasing interest in questions like, is there life after death? And there have been many books come out on this subject, reincarnation, rebirth, previous lives. Um, Mediums like James von Prague and others uh, report back from the dead, report, have communication with the dead. Um, It's on TV shows, talk shows, Larry King, near-death experience, many, many books, videos on is there life after death, which is a, certainly a, a very a fascinating and worthwhile question. But I think what we'll be, we're taking ourselves up with this week and what IMS is dedicated to is a different question, which is, is there life before death? That's our challenge. And if so, uh, what quality and how and is this life the way we're living? Uh, The ancient Chinese had a way of looking at it that if you were divided in what you were doing, they call that a killing life. And it's in a certain way a very subtle violation of the first precept. Some people see it that way. You don't go to jail for it. But if you're doing one thing, but you're somewhere else in your mind, you're not there. You're not fully there, so you've killed life to some degree. And then they flip it around. If you are wholeheartedly and undividedly where you are, doing what you're doing, they call that giving life to life. And that's really what I'm getting at. Um, A very great uh, Japanese Zen master, many of you have heard of, called Dogen, uh, was once asked what awakening is or what the awakened mind is like. And he said that it was a mind that was intimate with all things. And I'd like to go into this a little bit this evening, uh, very much keeping in mind that I think there are approximately 35 people or a fair number of people on this retreat who are, it turns out, not only new to IMS, but new to retreat life, new to intensive practice. And then there are others who have uh, been practicing for quite some time. And so I hope I can establish certain or certain basics of our practice, a certain fundamental attitude um, that will, I hope, be useful for those of you who are rather new. And as a reminder, or to prod some of us old-timers. Be intimate with all things. Uh, In Dogen's usage, intimacy here means non-separation. Probably everyone in this room has some sense of the word intimacy, and it's probably a good thing. We all want it. Or we have mixed emotions about it, but we feel we should want it. I'd rather like to start rather humbly with our life here, uh, trying to 
give you a sense of intimacy of practice. Um, as it expresses itself with the challenges that uh, face us as we uh, attempt to live wholeheartedly uh, in our life here at IMS. A retreat of this order is like a little society that springs up. You can call it a sangha, whatever you want to call it. We're all here together for seven days. There's a staff that's been here before we arrived. They'll be here after we leave. We're all here and we're a certain way. We find ourselves being a certain kind of person with a certain shape, body, a certain age, a certain level of energy. We find ourselves in a certain financial situation having this kind of a job with a health condition that's a certain way. That for one reason or another has prompted us to perhaps go through a fair amount of trouble to come here. Some of us are just w literally walked in the door and others of us have been here many, many times. And let's start with one of the first things that happens when you get here is your yogi job. The staff love when I talk this way because uh, I'm not a labor, re a labor representative for the staff and I'm doing it for different reasons, but sometimes it benefits the staff. I hope so. It's actually designed to benefit all of us. Uh, there are different theories of, uh, uh, or systems of, of giving out yogi jobs. One is that uh, you just uh, you come and you pick the one you like, uh, perhaps a little bit of nego negotiation, but I found out that there were people who would come five and six hours before a retreat. This is a few years ago. I didn't know this. Uh, to get some succulent, read easy job. Uh, and this seemed quite out of line with what I knew about the way work was given out uh, in the places I trained in Asia and, and in this country as well. And so we've changed it. My guess is that the staff being kinder than me probably soften a little bit. And if you have a long face when they tell you the toilet, maybe they negotiate a little bit with you or maybe if you have a sad tale, they'll, they'll listen. Now, of course, we don't uh, mean to go against any medical understandings. That is, if there's a good reason for you not doing certain kinds of work because of your physical condition, naturally, we're not interested in pushing against that. Um, but it turns out, and you know the answer to this better than I do, that if the jobs are giving, given out in a somewhat random way, I think it's becoming more and more somewhat, it used to be random, uh, you don't always get what you want. You probably have, some of you at least, have jobs that um, maybe you would never pick. And maybe you look around and you see you have this job sort of in the boiler room sweating away with a dish, dishwashing machine and someone else has just a little feather duster that takes 10 seconds and they're outside walking in the sun and there you are in the galley slaving away, sweating and and of course, uh, expected to be equanimous about it. Or you may have a job that really goes against your nature. We had someone here a few years ago who, a very uh, successful professional, who was furious that he was assigned the toilets and just uh, couldn't understand uh, <laughs> why, uh, what was the point? He didn't come all this way to do that. 
uh, and the staff tried various things, but he was really quite stubborn. So I told him a story, my own story. Um, we will get to intimacy of practice, you'll see. <laughs> because, see, mostly the, it's a lack of intimacy. We're at war with so many things we do. And so we have to start where we are. Uh, when I w went with uh, one of my teachers who was a, a Korean teacher uh, many years ago, uh, we went to Japan and Korea. And the first stop was Japan for a few months. And I was doing some retreats. He would bring me to uh, different Japanese uh, monasteries that he knew well. They were his friends. He was, had taught in Japan as well as Korea for many years. He brought me to one, and as was his custom, which uh, I didn't like at all, but there were three Americans. And uh, we had all been to, had a lot of schooling and went to schools that were well known. And when he got to me, he described, I had been a professor at the time. I, I had dropped out actually three or four years before this. But he was speaking as if it was present tense. And I couldn't understand the Japanese he was speaking in, but I could understand the names of the schools that he was dropping. And it was clear that he was showing off, and I heard words like professor and the names of these schools, and my name, Larry. And uh, I felt uncomfortable. And they were, the, the monks and the, the master, they were all smiling and looking, oh, oh, very impressed with my teacher's bragging, essentially, about the three of us. And then it came time for the jobs to be assigned. And so um, when it got to me, and I have to use, please excuse my language, but I'm just quoting what happened. He spoke in his broken English, and he went, Larry-san, shithouse. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so that's, and all the monks started to giggle. Uh, and that's where professors get sent. And we deserve it, you know. It's uh, our, as we say, karma or camo, whatever. Um, it's not to be mean. In fact, at this place, it turned out to be a wonderful place to practice. They, by and large, rotate the jobs within reason. Some people can't do certain jobs. Others uh, can do jobs uh, very well that no one else can do. And what it is, of course, it challenges you. It, it forces you to look at yourself if you see it that way. And so I would encourage you to understand that your yogi job is an integral part of your practice. And if you can view it that way, along with all the other activities that are other than formal practice, other than sitting and walking. If you can view it, uh, not divorce it from formal practice, but understand that it is, uh, it's all practice. At any rate, uh, if you've been given a job that's not too much to your liking, a bad situation is a good situation. That's a Dharma aphorism. And the only way you can find out if that's true is to apply it. Uh, if you don't like the job that you have, then there's a good chance that the attitude you bring to it might be grumpy, uh, distracted, impatient. Your mind may be elsewhere. You may want to just get it over with so that you can take a walk around the loop or go upstairs and rest. You may have some resentment. You may be repulsed, perhaps it is the bathroom, and you don't like bathrooms, at least not to clean them, or whatever it is. Those are the materials to practice with. Clearly, you're not intimate. Um, for the most part, separation, in the way in which Dogen used it, 
has to do with the way in which we keep thinking. We insert thinking in between us and the actions that we're carrying out. So that we're not fully present. So that this notion of intimacy uh, becomes increasingly subtle. It's not just these blatant forms where we're not there. But there are subtle ways in which it appears to be there, but we're not in touch. Intimate means you're really there. There's no separation. You're not in touch with what's happening fully. So uh, even if you don't have a strong attitude, the mind being the way it is, is likely to be all over the place. And in those moments when it's not vacuuming, it doesn't have vacuuming mind, then the practice is not to try to um, strong arm your way into intimacy. You know, yeah, they're right, Dogen's right, I heard he's a great Zen master, I'm going to be intimate with everything I do here for the next seven days. You can't, it would be uh, exhausting, and it would make practice just dreary and grim. But what you can do, it's a much lighter touch that you bring to the practice, what you can do is notice separation. It's not nearly as muscular. You're chopping vegetables, or scrubbing something, or cleaning something, or carrying something somewhere. Uh, it doesn't take uh, even a tremendous amount of samadhi. Your ordinary awareness that you brought up here, even those of you who are rather new, you can notice if your mind is away, gathering wool somewhere. It's not there. You're thinking about home, or you're worrying about this, and you're worrying about that. And uh, we human beings, uh, we can get things done. Uh, our, the dishes can be immaculate at the end of it, and we weren't there. We've done it so many times that we just go on automatic pilot and everything gets done. Now, that may be good from an efficiency point of view, but from a Dharma point of view, it's killing life. You're not there. And the point of practice is to, to be with what's happening. Now, <clears throat> all of us have made some sacrifices, I, I assume that, or perhaps most of us, uh, to come here. Uh, it's only reasonable that you come here and you want something out of it. What am I going to get out of my experience? And you come with an agenda. You may come with an agenda. And it may be a personal problem that you want to solve, but there's some way in which perhaps you feel incomplete and that you've read all these books and your friends have come here and they've told you what a fantastic place it is and how their life has been changed by practicing Vipassana. Or you've been having good practice at home and then you realize that if you seven days of, of what you've already been doing with just an hour or two a day, wow, it's going to be even much better. So that whatever it is that's on your mind that you've brought here, that's between you and what's happening. And life has a way of insisting on being exactly the way it is. Have you noticed? It doesn't care about our expectations. It's just going to roll on. Life is uncertain from moment to moment. We all know that, but we forget. And so it's only natural that when you practice, you have goals. Uh, if we move from work for a moment uh, during the work situation, uh, just practice with separation, with distance, with ways in which you're not fully there. And little by little, they start to weaken and fall away, and you may find yourself uh, present. And it's not that uh, cleaning the toilet is so wonderful. You don't have to make that into a counter-ideology of how wonderful it is to clean toilets and 
I don't know if you saw a tricycle a few issues ago. There's a whole uh, sect in Japan who they just, that's their practice. They have brooms and mops and they travel around and clean up restrooms and uh, gas stations and restaurants and then they move on and go to another place. So this picture of these incredibly happy, smiling people cleaning up other people's toilets. You saw it, yeah. Uh, not too American, I don't think. But anyway, I'm not suggesting that. It's not uh, so much what you do, it's uh, what we're, what's being suggested here uh, by Dogen is that whatever we encounter is our life. Whatever we encounter is our life. And so much of our life, you could say most of it, is made up of these small events. Ordinary, very ordinary. And I don't mean ordinary in a derogatory way. Ordinary is, to me, very beautiful. Some years ago, uh, in the early days of the uh, Cambridge Center, uh, someone who uh, was doing restaurant work came in and had been practicing much the way we have been here and heard talks somewhat like this. And this, uh, this man was a cook, and he came in and he was exuberant. Oh, what is it? And he said, well, I've been a cook for 10 years, and for the first time, said, uh, I, I was chopping broccoli today, and I just became, I, I really ap applied the practice, and I just became radiant and clear and peaceful and just so happy. Uh, and then it, some of the questions and the interest in the group was as if, well, where, do you, where did we buy broccoli and start chopping? <laughs> you know, it has nothing to do with broccoli. Or uh, uh, one great master in China was asked, what is enlightenment? He said, eating rice, drinking tea. He meant just eating rice, just drinking tea. So what do we go to the nearest Chinese restaurant and then we'll all get awakened? I doubt it. We've been in those Chinese restaurants thousands of times. Are we awakened? We're just hungry a half an hour later. Anyway. What had happened was that uh, the broccoli was just the occasion which enabled this person to experience the fact that he was alive and that that was an extraordinary thing to be alive. Uh, and the freshness of it uh, was experienced in a vivid and unmistakable way. He just had, a, he had the beginnings of a taste of what, where practice goes and it doesn't always happen on the cushion can happen anywhere. Hey, um, when we get to sitting, the sitting practice, uh, even with a seemingly simple, although not easy, a practice like breath awareness, it's the same teaching. Everything, the whole teaching is really in the breath too, depending on how you look at it. So if we take this teaching and carry it over into our sitting practice, what's being asked of us is, can we be intimate with the breath? You can't force that. You can't force yourself into the breath so that there's no separation. What you can do is aim yourself in the right direction, aim your attention to the breathing, and begin to notice the many ways in which you're 
there's something between you and the breathing. Sometimes we use techniques which are quite useful, like counting the breath, or labeling, like in, out, or we use a, something like a mantra in the Thai forest tradition, Budo, which means that which knows, the one who knows. We coordinate it with the breath, and that's very, very useful uh, when the mind is, is very busy thinking. And you might consider that, those of you who are rather new to the practice, if the mind is very busy thinking. Uh, so we give the thinking mind something to nibble on. We count from one to ten on the in-breath or the out-breath. Or we say in, out, in, out. And those thoughts enable us to stabilize our attention a little bit more. And the thinking mind calms down a little bit. It feels attended to, recognized. Uh, but sometimes, if you're careful and you watch, you can see that the counting or the, or the name subtly gets between you and the raw experience. And that's what intimacy is about. The intimacy of practice is experience uh, that's free of any uh, concept. It's, it's what is. It's just the way it is. But that would be a necessary prelude sometimes, is to, is to bring thinking in in that kind of a skillful way. And then when you don't need it, let it go and come to the breath. And there still are ways in which we uh, are not, there's subtle separation between ourselves and the breathing. For example, uh, you've heard us say a number of times, some of you have heard me say it a few, probably thousands of times, to allow the breath to unfold naturally, to leave it alone. Uh, to not to set aside any ideas that you might have as to how the breath should be and let the breath do all the work. And yet, when you look closely, you can see that there are subtle ways in which we are controlling things. It gets very, very subtle. And that urge in the mind, that design, that plan, that goal, that aspiration, to some degree is between you and the breathing and the full natural breathing. For one person, it's very hard to just allow the letting go to completely happen. Sometimes it means that a person has a hard time letting go, not only with breath. I'm not making it an automatic, symbolic equivalence, not at all, but sometimes. Uh, and then the next challenge, if you can allow an exhalation to really do its job, to just empty fully as much as it seems to want to, then the challenge becomes can we, we be fully there to receive what's next, that what we call an inhalation? Just present, to fully receive it. But some people can't re receive it fully or in the way it is. Or hurry it up along, perhaps not trusting that they'll receive enough nourishment, subtle nourishment of breath. And so it's quite a while before uh, there is just this, um, in a sense, disappearing, the awareness, the breath, and the body disappear into each other and become a unity. It's a wonderful time in practice when you sit and there's that uh, effortless quality of breathing and sitting and knowing that you're breathing. And yet it's accompanied by peace and joy. Probably uh, many of us who've been practicing for a while have tasted it to some degree. And there's a, a stage in, in breath awareness where 
you fall away altogether, and that's the real intimacy with breathing. And it experientially feels as if you're being breathed, and there's no breather to be found. Because the breather is just an entity concocted by thought. Thought creates a little space, and it fills it up with our experiences and thoughts and aspirations and fears, wounds and so forth. And we call it me, and we identify with that content. And a subtle one is to identify with the thought that I'm a meditator, I'm a yogi. It seems inescapable. The ego finds out what you want. If you want to be a great meditator now, fine. I thought you wanted to be a millionaire or a great sexual, uh, I don't know what. Uh, <laughs> but now you're, you're done with that. And now you want to be a great spiritual holy person. Okay, I don't care. As long as I'm the star, I don't care. I'll jump in there and be a great yogi. But sometimes even that falls away. And there's just sitting and uh, breathing and it's uh, uh, really fine we all, we, when it happens. Um, this points to, in general, uh, the, there's a kind of, to perhaps simplify it a little, but there's a, an unfolding of observation, this art of observation, because that's what we're learning. If you, if you want to get to know yourself, sit down and take a look. That's what we're doing, and we're starting with the breath. The breath leads into everything that we are. And to begin with, when you're learning the art of observation, self-observation, there's a fair amount of not only self-consciousness, but our psyche is in intertwined with the looking. So that even in interviews, if you ask a person, are they able to be aware, they'll say yes, and they're not lying. They're not aware of the fact that they're tremendously self-conscious about this new skill that they're learning. And their psyche, their likes and dislikes, fears, loves, and so forth, uh, are to some degree mixed in with the looking and are projected onto what you're looking at. And then we think that we're seeing. But with practice, that starts to thin out. It starts to fall away. And then more and more what's left is the object as it is, whether it's the breath. For the moment, we're talking about the breath, but it applies beyond the breath. And then even when the observation becomes that clear and fulfilling, and it's very, very helpful. And a lot of useful things go on in practice. The next step is, is the self-consciousness. There's still this sense of an observer, someone who's meditating. And that prevents full intimacy. Full intimacy in the, in the Dharma sense is when you're not there. But there are many wonderful steps along the way moving in that direction that we, of necessity, move through that are valuable, that need to be experienced, and then to let, be let go of. When someone asked an ancient teacher, uh, what is enlightenment? And the person said, the oak tree in the garden. What they meant was there was just, this, the person happened to be looking at, the, at an oak tree in the garden at that moment. And in that moment, that was enlightenment in action. There was just 
that oak tree, clear, vivid, beautiful. The reason it was is that the thought process was not coloring it with notions. Another answer to the same question was three pounds of flax, flaxseed. That's what the person was doing at the time. Now this, so this shows you that intimacy is not limited to the cushion. It's a way of living where we enter into our life. We jump into our life. Sometimes, uh, and this I think is a misconception, it can be carried for a long time, sometimes we think that vipassana practice that the observation or mindfulness is about detachment. People use that term. Uh, I think at the beginning, probably that's so. And it's helpful to detach from some of the things that we've been overwhelmed by. Uh, the different mind states that uh, we've been so thoroughly identified with and lost in, which have caused us a lot of suffering. And then someone gives us the message that if we're willing to observe those mind states, not deny them, not repress them, but also not identify with them, that something nice will happen. It'll be helpful to do that. I've lost my thread. Need your help. See, I'm in the moment. What? Too much in the moment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, detachment is a bit, and perhaps it's necessary, let's say if we're looking at fear, for someone rather new to the practice, a bit like being up in a mountain with binoculars, looking down at the fear, and you feel safe, and you're looking at your fear. Perhaps practice begins that way, but that's certainly not practice as I understand it. And a term like non-attachment is closer to the truth. Non-attachment, whether it's with the breath or whatever you're observing, uh, you're a participant observer. Whereas you're fully in the midst of life, but you have not lost your objectivity. So that if there's fear, the fear is not outside you. It's not out somewhere. It is, it's there. What could be more close than the fear? It's right there. Can we allow that? Can we open to it? with equanimity, so that we're neither pushing away or holding on or in any way distorting what it is we're observing. Now that's an art that takes some doing to refine, and that's what we're, we're learning. That's where freedom comes from, this ability to be aware, awake, with equanimity, to not condemn or cling to what we can see. And so that takes some time. And when we've come here uh, and, you know, it's, uh, we give up a lot of comfort to come here. Michael was getting at it yesterday with, this, with renunciation, waiting on lines, uh, not having our own private bathroom, uh, not eating the food we want. You know, it goes on and on. There's a lot of discomfort. You have to subordinate yourself and uh, not only your yogi job, but in many ways for, for this many people to live harmoniously. We have to honor certain rules, and we have to give up many of our comforts. And it's only natural that we want to get something out of our stay here. And if that's on our mind, if we put something ahead of ourselves, we place something down the road in front of us that 
we're running after, and when we get it, then we'll be okay. We're not fully okay right now, and that's why we're here. But when we get that, whatever it is, a calm and concentrated mind, the ability to be with the breathing uninterruptedly for extended periods of time, then I'll be really uh, happy. And we check every five minutes, every five seconds. You know, am I happier? Uh, am I more calm? Is there less suffering? The Buddha says he wants to help us let go of suffering. I'm still suffering. And people will come into interviews, uh, not yet, we haven't started yet, and talk about how I can concentrate. I'm having a very hard time. It's so difficult to concentrate on the breath. Well, how many times, this is, comes from an actual interview years ago. How many, uh, we used to ask, I used to ask, I learned it from one of my Burmese teachers. I don't use this method anymore because it backfires in America. When you uh, have people who are very high achievers and you say, how many times did your mind leave the breath in the last sitting? That's an invitation for a suffering. Because now we want to get a new certificate, PhD, something. Whatever it is, oh, it's how many times did my mind leave the breath? And you give a concrete number. Well, what do you think you're going to say the next time you come into an interview? More or less? I think it'll be a little less. At any rate, I asked this person that, and, and he was really discouraged. It's so difficult. This Vipassana practice is so difficult. Well, how many times did your mind leave the breath in the last sitting? Oh, 30 times. Oh. Later on that afternoon, I remember this vividly because I learned a lot from it. Another per person came in glowing. I said, oh, how's the practice going? Wonderful, wonderful. Just love being here. Well, how many times did your mind leave the breath in the last sitting? Oh, about 30 times. So if the mind makes difficult, then it has difficult. Then not only do they have difficult, but then the teachers have difficult. And then we have to come up with a remedy to talk you out of thinking that it's difficult. Then we get grumpy and take it out on the staff call home, take it out on our wives. So don't make difficult. <laughs> but don't make easy either. Don't make anything is the teaching, Dharma teaching. And people have norms, and I don't know where these norms come from. Now, it's fine to have an aspiration. You know, we're all, it would be foolish to just come here to just wander around and I'm just into the moment. Uh, why do you want to do that? There, to have an aspiration to become a free and sane human being is a worthy aspiration. But if it's on your mind all the time and you keep checking to see if you've become uh, more sane and if you're freer, uh, then you're not in the moment because a portion of the mind is taken up with where you want to be. And you're not with where you are fully. You're so you're separated from the moment. You're not intimate with the moment because you have too much uh, yearning to be free, too much yearning to be sane, or whatever your goal is. Now, those goals can be wonderful to arouse energy to get us to practice, but then we have to learn how to use them wisely to benefit from the energy and the inspiration they can provide us and the direction. But to begin to see that to be in the moment has a dynamic force that takes you somewhere. This is not, we're not talking about siesta. Oh, just be in the moment, how can anything happen? You have to 
do something, to get somewhere, don't you? And I think we, for the most part, have that kind of mind. At least myself and many of the people that I know, we have an order to mind. And that mind is useful in many spheres of life. That is, I'll do this in order to get that. I'll do this in order to become that. And in many activities, you do have to put in time. If you want to learn a language, it will take time, and you have to do certain things and watch how you're starting to build up your vocabulary and so forth. Uh, so we're always trying to get from A to B and from B to C, and there are many of us who haven't got patience for that. They want to go from A to Z. In the meantime, the practice is learning how to get from A to A. And the person might say, well, that sounds stupid. If you're already at A, why do you need to learn how to get there? Because you're there, but you don't know it. Well, you're compromising your experience of A because you're so concerned with B. Now, if you fully open to A, admit it, receive it, are intimate with it, uh, mindful of it, whatever language uh, you resonate with, that has a dynamic force. It's not that you're trying to get anywhere, but that uh, is, it's not just a passive thing. This ability to be in the present moment uh, stimulates uh, an energy, and especially as that becomes more and more continuous. There's a good reason for it. See, there is only this moment. There's nothing else. If that's a new idea to you, Reflect on it a little bit, not too much, because we're not here to reflect too much, a little bit. All there really is is now. That's all there ever has been. That's all there ever will be. There's only now. It keeps being like that. It's strange, isn't it? It's mysterious. But we don't live if, as if that's so. Practice is starting to make that a reality. Um, there's much more to be said on this intimacy. I think I'll uh, end it for tonight, but just I realize... I overheard part of, I don't know who it was, ask uh, Ken during the period before, we, before the retreat began, manager's talk, if you could do journaling or keep a journal, and Ken uh, quoted me as saying no. Uh, he was correct, but uh, you need to know why. Uh, it's, not, it's not that there's something absolutely terrible about uh, keeping a notebook or, or uh, reflections on your life or a journal, and I know that it can be helpful. But a situation like this has to be understood as an organic whole. And if you just want to take the pieces you like, you denature it. The retreat, these retreats are not random accidental things. They've been, experiment, they've been experimented with for thousands of years. And we've added to that by experimenting with, by now, thousands of yogis. Okay, so that while you're here, what we want to do is cut down on the leaks of energy. Our natural tendency is outgoing. And I'm using outgoing in a very strict way, even when we're thinking about things, that, I, that's outgoing. And when you write a journal, it's a way of, in a certain way, it may seem as if it's intimate, but you're moving away from your experience by uh, putting it in writing. You're objectifying it. And as useful as that can be, and, uh, and also helpful to other people, 
uh, I would suggest you not have a, a big fat notebook of your personal insights at the end of this retreat. Just have the insights and let it go. The insights are valid for that moment. And then it's past. It's just an accumulate. Then it's knowledge and the past. So what we're trying to do, some of it is the logic of a retreat is not too complicated. It's a concentration camp. It really is. We're cutting off a lot of your escapes. I know not all of them. You're much too brilliant for that. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I gave up a long time ago. I do what I can. <laughs> and I know you'll outwit me. But who are you outwitting and what is it you're winning? So if you cut down or eliminate writing, reading, uh, making phone calls, and sometimes, of course, you have to. And, you know, be reasonable, and, and I think we, I know we are, too. Uh, then what's left? There's silence. If you've come with someone, uh, some of you are taking walks and uh, together and talking. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you don't. Uh, don't turn us into policemen. But we can be if we have to be. Because, you see, if you, silence is very, very fragile. That's the envelope within which we're learning how to practice this intimacy. And if even one person starts breaking the rules that way, it spreads. All of us would like to start chattering away and gabbing, holding hands. And it's only natural. You come with someone, uh, you want reassurance. If you feel it's not going well, you want to brag about how great it is if it is going well. Instead, watch the mind that is, you hear, it's, so, it's unique to have an opportunity like that. So your relationship will be waiting for you. It's, seven days will go by rather quickly. So what we're doing is we're trying to create a very simple environment. Silence is tremendously important, an important element in that plan, in that design. Uh, you sit with yourself a great deal. Uh, it's a very simplified existence. Uh, so you're stuck with yourself, essentially, isn't it? Isn't that what it amounts to? And we're trying to, and uh, for a good reason. Okay, can we have a few moments of silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.